Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. So have you gotten much fly fishing done in Edmonton since you've been up there? You know what? I haven't. And I'm a little disappointed I didn't get the brochure telling me I could go fly fishing with mountains. Um, look, this was obviously a topic in our player confidential where the guys talked about the brochures they were given and the promises they were made. And it really seems like the Alberta Tourism Department made it seem to these guys, hey, you're going to go to Alberta greater, not just a cement concrete jungle in the middle of Edmonton. I will say this, gorgeous river valley here. Really nice path there, gorgeous bridges, zero mountains within, I believe, a three and a half hour radius. Okay, because that's the thing. Like, we talked about the river, and I was confused because on NBC, they keep on showing these majestic aerial shots of a river, but it's cutting through snow-capped mountains. Are you saying that's not what Edmonton is? I think that's Jasper. <laughs> so maybe this whole it, it feels like a, a part of the simulation you know, like there's mountains and snow and rivers and fly fishing and, and it doesn't seem like any of this is there it's very confusing it's quite confusing and you know what i think that just leads to the entire experience in the bubble we just don't know what we're gonna get yeah and this kind of feels like when we watch a rutgers game and they show shots of the empire state building like exactly right <laughs> Although that's only like 20 miles away as opposed to, I don't know, a couple hundred kilometers. Yeah, well, I'm sure those snow-capped mountains are only 20 miles away as the crow flies. Anyways, uh, coming up on ESPN and Ice today, we've got a couple of really cool guests. Ryan Kessler is going to join us to talk about his big uh, revelation recently about his health. Uh, Frank Provenzano, there it is, will join us to talk about the NHL offseason, life under a flat cap, uh, former front office guy. Uh, and an astute observer of the game. Also, former ESPN talking head, we found out. We'll have to talk to him about that as well. Uh, plus, a little thing called the Stanley Cup Finals going on. So we'll talk about that as well on uh, ESPN and Ice. So let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN and Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. There you go. All the way from uh, from Edmonton, Alberta, home of Albertan beef, which is good for eating or, you know, throwing on eye injuries or all sorts of things. And the... uh, what I was telling Greg, though, and he can see it because we FaceTime <laughs> during our recording of this is a little inside baseball um, in my hotel room, shout out to the Weston in downtown Edmonton because they've been so hospitable. There mm. is a gorgeous painting of the mountains above my bed. <laughs> yeah, it's distracting. It's really distracting. It's like it's almost like a, a magic eye picture of the mountains. And uh, I think I'd spend the majority of my time in quarantine just staring at it to see if I can see the sailboat. Uh, speaking of seeing, you saw Stamkos. Seen Stamkos as the old campaign used to go in Tampa when he was first drafted there. What was it like? Give me, give me, the, give us the breakdown of what it was like uh, before Game Three, insofar as Stamkos watch. Like when we talked uh, briefly before the game, you thought maybe four or five you come back, and then all of a sudden here he comes, looking all like Chris Evans and in Infinity War, shaggy and blonde, uh, to come play Game Three instead. Yeah, well, again, a little inside baseball, but us here on site, we are finally allowed to see morning skates, which is great. That's a staple of our job. That's when we typically get to see line rushes and who's going to be in. Um, but we can only see it for the home team because they'll yeah. only allow us on the main ice and the away team, I guess, takes it on the practice ice. And so the Dallas Stars were the home team for game three, so we didn't get to see morning skate. And I think there is, you know... I've been hearing a lot of different rumors and a lot of buzz in the bubble. And there were some people of the belief that, you know, John Cooper is just doing some gamesmanship and is kind of hyping this up as a tune in to find out. But they all knew he wasn't going to come. But I've heard some pretty credible people saying he's really close and he's going to come. And the fact that Julian Brisebois said this before the series, he's hopeful that he's going to come. You're going to see him. So once we saw his stick on the bench... Um, taking warm-ups. You knew he wasn't going to take warm-ups if he wasn't going to play. Right. Um, it was a really exciting moment. This is one of those moments, though, where being in an empty arena was both fascinating for it and disappointing. Mm. It was fascinating because I could really hear the bench and almost see their expressions. And when he scored, that was a moment of pure joy. 
Um, and watching Stamkos celebrate with the teammates after the win and come to the post-game press conference, um, he was giddy. Like, you could just tell how much this meant to him. Um, but it was disappointing, and I understand this game would have been in Dallas, but those are the moments where he takes the ice. Even the booing of him would have brought us some energy. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that the Dallas fans would have booed him. Um, and so that just felt a little anticlimactic. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's accurate. And, you know, it's, his journey back has been really fascinating because when they bought him out for the Prince of Wales trophy presentation after the Eastern Conference final, it was kind of jarring. Like, like here's a guy that we've mm -hmm. heard about and we've seen him skating a little bit and these optional skates and whatever. To actually, like, see him again with his teammates was with like, that shaggy wow. hair with the shaggy what hair he been and doing? the whole thing look, looking like he just got unfrozen you know or some <laughs> and so like i i was really intrigued by that and at that moment i'm saying to myself okay is this just like the acknowledgement that he's in the bubble and we want him to be a part of this and he's been a part of this but he's not actually going to actually come back and play you know or is this an acknowledgement of he's coming he's, he's getting closer and so i guess it was the latter um Really fun to see him, really fun to see him score. Very much a guy that, and again, this is no fault, not to fault the Dallas Stars because they've got a bunch of guys in the same category, including their coach, but a guy that you can root for, uh, that you'd like to see mm -hmm. hoist the cup with the you know, accomplishments that he's had in his career, but also the absolute just tragedy that struck his career from an injury perspective as well. Um, just really good to see him back. Now, I mean, we only saw him back for like under three minutes. What do you think that means going forward? So that's the thing. The second he didn't come back out for the second period, and then when you see him sit on the bench the entire time, like there's this belief, we're not seeing this guy again. That was mm. it. And if so, can we just talk? Take away the bubble. Take away the pandemic. This is an absolutely incredible sports moment. Yeah. The captain who has been there for all this, like as you said, drama and playoff heartbreak since 2014 when he was named the captain no other team in the league has more postseason wins than the lightning but they have yet to win the cup and then they're doing it without him he can come for just three minutes and he makes an impact he scores that goal and once he scores that goal they know they're not losing and then if if we never see him again like that's insane poetry you could not script that like steve mayer with the nhl as creative as he is he couldn't even come up with that storyline um it's like I, it's like i said it's it's the team that has the best blu-ray that wins the Stanley <laughs> Cup, and that's, that's, a, that's a chapter on the Blu-ray. Right. What I find interesting, though, is after the game, I did ask John Cooper, like, when he came in, were there restrictions or limitations? And he said, no. Like, if a guy comes in, we know he's going to be 100%. We don't believe in specialization, like a guy just coming out to play in the power play, and he could just stand there and shoot. Um, but then he dealt with what he described as an issue, and that's why mm. he didn't come out. Now, the game was a little out of hand, so why risk it? I do think those two pieces of information, though, lead me to believe it's possible that he will return later in the series. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, great moment. Um, and obviously, as we do this podcast, Tampa's kind of turned the series. It's funny. Like, if you had asked me after the first two periods of Game 1 what the series was going to look like, I'd say, like, Dallas is going for the sweep. <laughs> like, they played so <laughs> incredibly well in the first two periods of Game 1. And then in Game, game 1's third period... Uh, it kind of got out of hand because they took a few penalties. They played on discipline. Tampa took the game over, and Anton Hudobin closed the door. And it turned out that like game, the third period of Game One was sort of indicative of the next two games, which is not good news for Dallas. They've been undisciplined. They've taken some a lot of penalties. Um, they didn't take three in the first period in Game Three, but they took two, and then another one early on in the second period. Um, so they're not playing Dallas Stars hockey. The, the, the attention to the detail, the execution was all there in that Vegas series and the goaltending as well in a way that it's not in this Tampa series. And the thing about the Lightning that's really underrated, like we always talk about, you know, Stamkos and Point and, and Kucherov and Palat and, and, you know, all these guys that can, that can put pucks in the net. And when they get rolling, they're almost an offensive juggernaut at times, but they are a really good defensive team when they get it locked in. Mm -hmm. The stats right now are pretty stunning. Um, 10 out of the last 12 games, they've allowed uh, two goals or less to their opponent. And and this is in the bubble where offense is, has gotten out of hand in some of these series a little bit. Now, granted, you know, they're playing Columbus and the Islanders, and, and these aren't exactly like offensive juggernauts. But the law of averages, averages tell you that uh, 10 out of 12 games is still pretty good. And, and against this Dallas team, uh, they now have done, it, have done it twice. So um, you know they're locked in when they're playing good D. And I think that they, they closed the door on Dallas in a game where Dallas – 
might have had a little chance to sneak back in if they had gotten a goal um, in, you know, at some point in the late second or early third period. So now the series, you know, we've had the Stamkos will hear, won't he drama for a couple days. And this weekend, I think I'm super pumped because it's the back-to-back, <laughs> the unusual back-to-back. And look, with all due respect to Curtis McElhaney, he ain't getting in. This is Andre Vasilevsky's show. But Ankon Kudobin, who I don't think has been bad in the series, he just hasn't been as strong as he has been, mm-hmm. there seems like a legitimate chance that he will not start one of these back-to-back games. And it feels to me like Ben Bishop is going to return, and that is going to be oh. some great drama. Now, he was on the ice for morning skate yesterday. We were able to see it. And I know they've gone to Jake Ottinger, um, you know, when they pulled him and then poor Jake Ottinger gets in and only gets like three shots. Um, The issue with Ben Bishop is he clearly came back too soon. That was his decision. And it was a disaster. Can the coaching staff trust him that he's ready again? And what can he bring to this team? Um, That is going to be what I'm watching this weekend. And I think it's going to be excellent, excellent drama. Yeah, and especially because, you know, although Hudobin has clearly carried them through that Western Conference final, and I think probably after game one was your odds on favorite to win the Conn Smythe if Dallas won the cup, um, they've long said, look, you know, it's a two goalie team, and uh, and they would not hesitate to go back to Ben Bishop if he was healthy, despite the fact that he had such a struggle a few, a few weeks ago when he came back too soon. So, it could be one of those momentum-swinging, energizing moments. This is a guy that clearly does not want the lasting impression of him in the playoffs to be getting yanked in the first period after a disastrous start. Um, so that could be a big moment for Dallas going back the other way. Where, what's your vibe on this series? Like As we do this podcast, it's Thursday. Uh, game four is Friday night. Game five, obviously, Saturday night. Tampa has this thing in hand right now. Um I think it's probably the series is dictated by what happens in game four. Like I can't imagine Dallas losing game four and then coming back the next night and winning. I just feel like maybe they're serious. Unless they have Ben Bishop playing out of his mind, uh, okay, standing maybe, on his head maybe, doing it. Yeah. Maybe if you get the Bishop thing going on, but I just like to think about the bubble dynamics and, and just like, you know, mm-hmm. th- th- there's a reason we haven't seen many of these series go the distance. And it's because of moments like Friday night where you are, looking at a situation where if you win and it's 2-2, well, now it's best of three and here we go. If you lose, it's 3-1 and boy, do I miss my kids. You know, you know, it's like you can't separate that from the experience these guys have had. I totally agree. I do feel like this Dallas Stars team, though, ain't going out without a fight. Um, I, I just, I can't see it as far as they've come. And I do think Tyler Sagan is dealing with something. Um, Mm. You know, the word is it's probably a wrist issue, and that's Mm. why he hasn't been um, as effective. But this is a team that has a lot of pride, has veteran leadership, and the vibe I get is this thing is going seven. Well, that's a good vibe to have. And as far as Sagan goes... Maybe it's an aspirational vibe. (laughs) As far as Sagan goes, I mean, you, you hope it's something, because otherwise it's kind of inexplicable that he's had one assist since game five of the Colorado series. That's a... Pretty long time. Um, I talked to, to be... Chris Versteeg. Um, yeah. We did a story on ESPN, and I thought he had a really interesting analysis on what's going on with Sagan because he was saying, you know, so many people are commenting he's skating fast, he's skating hard, he can't be injured. And he's like, yeah, but he's not engaged. And what he means by engaged is he's not in those battles on the board or, or those 50 mm-hmm. 50 puck possessions. And, and when a guy's not engaged, that usually means there's something up. And he just felt like if he gets more engaged defensively, then the offensive production will come. But maybe there's a reason he's hesitant to get engaged. Again, injury. Right. All right. So as we, as we talk about the series, it's 2 1 Tampa. Let's say, for argument's sake, the Lightning win the cup. Who's your MVP? You know, Kucherov is having an incredible postseason. Um, he's leading the playoffs in scoring. He's set these franchise records for most points in a postseason. Um, he's playing a ton of minutes. But there's something about Victor Hedman, um, who now has 10 goals. Like you said, the media is Curry. Um, <laughs> but has also been playing a ton of important minutes. And it's just the heart and soul of that defense. And I think right now I'm leaning towards Hedman, but it's between those two guys. Yeah, if I had a vote, I'd give it to Hedman. I just think that through all the rounds, he's been great. It's not to slight Kucherov. In fact, I think let's give him credit for not getting suspended. Uh, already an improvement over last <laughs> postseason for Kucherov. Um, but Hed- Hedman, to me, you know, in a lot of ways, this is now Hedman's team. 
Um, maybe it's because Stamkos has been out, or, or, or maybe it's just because Hedman has been so dominant in the last couple of years. Um, but he's the heart and soul of this team and, and does so many things so well, gets involved in the offense, obviously a rock defensively, and has had some real big moments too, the overtime goal and, and, and all that stuff. So, I mean, I think you have to give it to him. Um, with the acknowledgement that Point or Kucherov would be just as good. And then Vasilevsky's kind of probably like a little bit farther down from those three. But I think Hedman's probably the choice as well. And then we'll see what happens with Dallas. Hell, it could be Ben Bishop for all we know. <laughs> if he plays in game five and they're down 3-1 and wins three in a row, that'd be, that'd be an, easy, an easy path. Or Jake Ottinger. The, uh, yeah, or Jake Ottinger, exactly. If he's Thatcher Demko's this thing. All right, let's talk. Speaking of Thatcher Demko and the Canucks, let's talk about Let's talk to one of Vancouver's uh, greatest players uh, who has an interesting story about his post-playing days, Ryan Kessler. Joining us now on the line is Ryan Kessler. Uh, you know him from his uh, years at the Vancouver Canucks and the Anaheim Ducks, uh, currently on long-term IR, uh, and in the news for his participation in The Problem of Pain, a TSN news segment slash documentary uh, done by Rick Westhead this week in which uh, Ryan was very candid about the impact that... Um, some anti-inflammatory uh, pain medication that he took during his playing days had on him in the long term. And Ryan, thanks for joining us, man. What what uh, prompted you to participate in this uh, TSN piece, by the way? Uh, my my agent gave me a call and basically asked me if uh, I'd be willing to share my story because obviously he's my agent. He knows all about my struggles right now. And um it was a, just I, I just agreed because it's a, it's a chance just to educate um, the younger generation and hopefully, you know, they can make their own decisions, but hopefully they're informed on those decisions and able just able to make an educated decision rather than a rash and a harsh one. Yeah, and so the the, the medication we're talking about is Toradol, which is a, a pretty prevalent medication. I understand for NHL players. Um, you you took it, you, it the the recommendation is to only take it for like five days straight I think but you were taking it with some frequency as do a lot of guys and then you said in 2015 you uh, developed colitis um, and that the doctors told you the condition was most likely triggered by this abuse what what was life like after 2015 for you uh, changed that's for sure you <laughs> you go to restaurants based on the the bathroom facilities uh, um. You tend to stay home because it's it's embarrassing. Um, obviously, the way I deal with it is I, I joke and I talk about it. Some people aren't as willing to be as forthcoming as, as I am that have it. But, you know, I, I just deal with it by jokes. And um, it, it's hard on a daily life. If, if I have a flare-up, I'm, I'm down and out. I get a fever. I, I'm... I'm I'm basically KO'd for two, three days. And, um, you know, I'm under medication now, Remicade, but that, that puts me down too. that puts, as soon as I get an infusion once every eight weeks and, and that destroys me. And that's all from the Toradol and the, and the Voltaren that I've, I've used and was given. Ryan, I just want to ask you, you said the reason you spoke out is to educate the next generation, which I think is incredibly admirable, but this is a tough topic to talk about. You're still under contract technically with an NHL team. If we know something about hockey players, they never really want to make the story about themselves. They never really, um, you know, want to call out, you know, team doctors, team physicians, the team. How hard was it for you to talk about this and, and know it would be so public? Uh, it was hard. Obviously, I thought about it before, but it's it's not about the teams I played for, um, and that's what I want to make clear. It's not uh, I I had made my own decisions, and to be honest, I'm the type of person that would probably make those decisions all over again, um, the same way. Uh, you know, I, I I have a great deal of respect for everybody that works for those two organizations. And uh, I just want to pay it forward, um, you know, pay it forward to a younger generation, whether it be through CBA talks or through tough subjects to talk about. Because guys do talk about 
their their pill intakes and and Toradol and how much they use and it's kind of a joke to some guys. Well, it's a joke until something like what happens to me happens and you're stuck with Crohn's or colitis the rest of your life. Then mm-hmm. then it's uh, it's not so funny. The documentary uh, really pointed out the frequency of, of of pain medication use and anti-inflammatory injection use in the league, where you had some player agents telling TSN that. Um, guys were, you know, there's not a regular season or playoff game that goes by where guys aren't, you know, putting something in their body beforehand. Was that your experience from not only yourself, but what you saw? How, how widespread and almost kind of mandatory is this pain management across the league currently? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure to, to play every night. I think it's getting better. I think, um, within the last few years, I think, Got, you're starting to see guys take games off more, and um, but at the same time, that's that's all personal. Um, the uh, the lifetime of an NHL hockey player is based on how well, how good you are, but also how healthy you are. And if you can stay in the lineup, if you can't stay in the lineup, then you're just a piece of meat. And I think everybody knows that. I think that's the re- I think that's really the reason why everybody uses it in playoffs to help the team and, and really just to be out there and, and to support your family. Um, because if you're not out there, you never know when you're going to get a next contract. So you want to, you want to show that you're a team guy. You want to, you want to put your best foot forward. And to be honest, I, I, I really don't think it's just a hockey problem. I, you know, I, I know a couple of football players and, and it's a, it's a problem in the NFL too. And, and they have 16 games and, you know, you hear horror stories about that too. So, you know, hopefully just in general, um, this all gets fixed. Well, that leads me perfectly to my next question. You mentioned, uh, you know, this is something that guys could talk about in the next CBA. What changes would you like to see implemented? What can be done here? I think just education. I think we do the, the education uh, for social media and media and all that before the season started before training camp every year. And it's, it's basically the same video every year we watch. And, you know, I'd like to see that implemented for Toradol or all these painkillers. And, and, you know, I think it's different than the oxys in that, um, you know, they do do it for the oxys, but you, I'd like for them to, to spread it to Toradol and Voltaren and Celebrex and, and just to educate the players. That's all. Um, as I think one of the things that's changed certainly in the last maybe decade or even maybe just even five years has been sort of the acceptance of alternate ways to manage pain in particular, uh, CBD, cannabis, things like that. Bobby Ryan on the TSN piece kind of put voice to that. What do you think about, about, about those types of more natural remedies and, and whether or not they're officially embraced? I know the players, you know, can use them. But are they are they sort of is the, is the company line to also incorporate that into pain uh, management or, or or not at this point? No, that's uh, yeah, that's that's uh, it's kind of taboo right now. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's definitely not recommended by any any team doctor that I know, and and uh, you know even in California where it's legal, um, it wasn't even recommended to us. So that's, that's we're we're far off from that. Um, if they're recommended, it's it's recommended from from an outside source, um, maybe your personal trainer or or your own nutritionist that uh, you pay on the side. That's wild. I want to ask what's going on with you now. Um, you, you're on LTIR. I understand before this you might have had a physical therapy Zoom session. Welcome to 2020. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. What is your day-to-day like? Are you training? Do you have hopes to play hockey again? Uh, just tell us a little bit about what you're going through and, and maybe what the next chapter might hold for you. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I had hopes. Um, you know, I... I uh, I tried skating the other day um, for the first time in like 17 months and put my full equipment on and just went out there for like 15 minutes just to see how it felt. And it, it, uh, it wasn't good. And it wasn't even my, my right hip that was bothering me. That's brand new. It's my left. So I'm in the middle of uh, talking to team doctors right now. And 
my next step for that hip because uh, that one's going along the same path as my right one. So saying that it doesn't doesn't look like I'll be playing again, um, you know, it's freshly in my mind. And I've talked to my agent. I talked to my family about it, and it's it's a decision that's not final, but most likely I'm I'm uh, you won't see me out there again. Yeah, that's a bummer, man. It was so much fun watching you play. You're one yeah, of the... just, it's tough. It's, it's tough. I mean, mentally yeah. I can play, and mentally I, I mean, I watch the games, and I see the mistakes, and I see where guys should be, but when your body shuts down on you and you you play through pain your whole career, and, and, and especially the last two years that I played, it's uh, I, I just can't do that again to my body. It's uh, with all the, all the pills I had to take just to get on the ice it's it's not something i'm willing to do yeah you're such a competitor man like it, i mean as far as win at all costs kind of players <laughs> like very few guys were in your category during your career and i was thinking about you when it came to this bubble stuff and the fact that we're watching these playoffs being played in this sort of vacuum and um you know we just did this big piece on espn with talking to guys off the record or anonymously i should say about their experiences in the bubble and I was wondering what you thought life would be for you, what could have been like for you in the bubble. You play with such ferocity in the playoffs. Like, could you share an elevator with a guy on the other team <laughs> after a game the, the uh, night before? It'd be awkward for sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm surprised there hasn't been a couple dust up, but that's that's the new NHL. So, um, but you know, you know, I think. All, all the guys are good guys. They are. They're, they're, and you know, I might not be the most liked guy because of the way I play or the way I played, but you know what? At the end of the day, I'm a good guy off the ice. I'm not the same person. I, I kind of morph into this, if you could say, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that that will win at win at all cost and and do anything just to help the team win, no matter what. And and I think everybody knows me for that. And, and, uh, this whole bubble thing, I, I feel for the guys now that I, I heard there's six families that only went three from each team. So just to, to miss out that experience in the finals, I know my family, that's some of my fondest memories of, of just enjoying that moment with them in 2011 with Vancouver, with, you know, all the fans. So that, that, that kind of sucks for them. But at the same time, you know, I, I would, I would enjoy being in the bubble because you don't have to travel. Mm. You have your, your therapist there. You can, you can get treatment after games. You don't have to worry about getting on a bus and getting back to the hotel. So it's, uh, it's definitely easier from that aspect, I think. And, and I hear words of groundhogs day every day, but they said, it's not that bad. Now you play every other day and, and it's, and it's, uh, it's not normal, but it's 2020 normal. <laughs> exactly. Well, right. As we do a little bit of a career retrospective, I'm curious if you could just say the one moment or thing in your career you are most proud of. And if this is it for you and you don't lace up the skates again in any kind of high level competition, what's your one regret? The one thing that you wish you could have done? Uh, you know, My my well, I got two regrets. They're, they both go on the same thing. I wish I could have won a Stanley Cup with my teammates in Anaheim and and for that city and and also for the city of Vancouver. They they deserve it. They that's that's probably one of my biggest one because you could taste it. It was Game Seven with with uh, Anaheim. We only got to the conference finals Game Seven, but still you can kind of taste it there. And those would probably be my two biggest regrets. Um, team wise but personally just just being an idiot and, and uh <laughs> playing through game uh, playing through pain and and uh you know not getting surgery during the season and waiting for the summer and just letting that just just wear away at my body um if i would have known what i know now um if i could see into the future then i definitely would have uh I definitely would have looked at things differently. Not saying I would have changed my mind, but um, you know, if someone would have said at 36 years old, I'd have trouble walking upstairs and, and uh, 
you know, get out of bed and it's like walking on nails. Uh, you know, I, I might have looked at my stance a little differently at, at play at all costs. Yeah, I guess the last one for me, man, and thanks for the time. We really appreciate the candor. Um, it, it, do you see a way that, that that part of hockey culture changes? Like the, the, the sort of badge of honor playing through pain? I mean, the NHL just the other day published a video on their official Twitter feed uh, glorifying guys getting injured blocking shots in the playoffs. They've deleted it after the criticism they got from people who are like, don't glorify this. But, I mean, it's still mm-hmm. very much ingrained in hockey culture and in some ways promoted by the league. Like, do you see a path towards subsequent generations not following the same path that you followed? You know, I definitely think it's changing from even five, ten years ago. Um, but during playoffs, no. Uh, mm. Playoffs is a different animal, and um, that's where players make their money, and that's where uh, that's what we're playing for. That's what we play those 82 games for is is just to win 16 more. And missing one playoff game is like missing seven regular season games. So I think I don't know if that'll ever change, um, but. You know, hopefully during the regular season, guys look at it as a marathon and not a sprint and just take care of themselves and, and uh, just just be smart and, and, and be educated. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, if your goal is to educate the next generation and have younger guys not make some of the same decisions that you did, um, just speaking so candidly on this is, is an act of bravery and an act of service. So thanks for coming on. All the best to you and your family. And um, here's to a better 2021. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. Our thanks to Ryan Kessler for joining us here on ESPN and Ice. Um, you know, we like to report on and talk about what players are going through and try to get the human side of this game as often as we can, which is one of the driving forces behind a story that you may have checked out this week. And if you did, thank you for that. It's our NHL player confidential, in this case, bubble confidential, um, in which we spoke to a bunch of players. They spilled the beans on what's going on in the bubble. Um, Sometimes to the chagrin of the NHL, sometimes not. That's to be expected. But it was sort of, you know, a chance to kind of give an eyewitness account of what these guys have gone through in the last couple months. And, you know, sometimes your perception when you're on the ground isn't necessarily going to match up with the facts. Like, for example, in the story, there was some talk about per diems and, and immediately the NHL and the NHLPA pushed back on, on the numbers on that stuff. And that's to be expected. But I think what that is, even if it's not necessarily pinpoint accurate, it's a representation of what these players perceive to be the case. And if what they perceive to be the case isn't the case, whether it's per diems or, or uh, excursions or any of the other stuff that they were kind of complaining about in sort of the bait and switch way, I think the important thing is to try to figure out why they perceive it. And it's usually a lack of communication, um, you know, either between themselves and their team, their team in the league, the league and the players. So that was kind of our, my take, at least on, on the piece. What did you learn from doing Bubble Confidential? Yeah, you know, I, I was taking this earlier to someone. I know when guys want to talk for a story. When I did the NHL players have big butts and they can't find jeans that fit. <laughs> I was sh- everyone from Connor McDavid to Jonathan Taze, guys that typically don't open up, were like giving me good anecdotes. Um, it's something that affects them and, and is true in their world. When I reached out to a bunch of guys for the story, some guys that I didn't even have the best relationship with, you know, I might have only known casually, they wanted to talk. And I think the reason is they wanted it to be constructive. If they have to do this again, and if there's any talk of it, they want everyone to know what it was like and they want to get it on the record. And, you know, I was texting with a couple of the guys after it ran and I was going to read one of these texts online. Thanks. Well done. That's all we can ask for. Wasn't terrible, but room for improvement like always. And, and I think that's kind of the sentiment that they all felt like the bubble. Look, we get it. There was a short runway. It's a global pandemic. We understand the financial situation. We had to do it. But, man, you really cut a lot of corners and transparency was an issue. And I think you're so right on that. And the one issue that comes up again and again with the players of their experience in the bubble was families. They mm-hmm. were told your families are going to come. And then they get there. And then all of a sudden they're given questionnaires 
well, how many family members are going to come? And they're like, wait, we haven't figured this out yet. And yeah. then they kept moving the goalposts. And they understand this could come down, and it probably did, to an issue with the Canadian government. They just felt like the NHL and NHLPA um, weren't honest and open about it. And they kept moving the goalposts. And most importantly, they weren't fighting for them. And so I think just getting this out there on the record is like, you know what? This is something that's so important to us. It is non-negotiable next time if we have to do it. Yeah, and, and the next time we'll, we'll talk about in a second because that was interesting in talking to the guys. But, <laughs> Some um, of those quotes were hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of the attention, I think, on the story was about sort of the, the promises that weren't fulfilled. Like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, the fly fishing thing is one of my favorite punchlines of the entire restart. Just the idea of, you know, guys walking around being like, Did you go The mountains you go aren't fishing? even within four hours of here. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of the story was also about the weirdness of bubble life and not necessarily complaining about the reality of their surroundings. Um, my takeaway from the story was in talking to one of the guys and saying, Hey, what's the weirdest thing that's gone on there? And I'm expecting any number of different answers to that question, but it was very much just like, it's really weird to have to cohabitate with people that you hate. And, and by hate, it's like playoff hate, right? Like these guys all train together and they're all friends. And if it's the regular season, they might be going out to get a beer with each other after the game. But in the playoffs, they still, the hate's real. And like the competition is real. And, and it's very much, you are trying to take this thing away from me. And um, the idea that, that everybody's in the same hotel. And uh, I had somebody tell me the other day that like they would, they would time their entry into the elevator so they didn't have to share it with somebody from another team. Like to have this sort of like high school mean girls thing going on where like I think I think one of the guys told you that like they would avert their eyes from from, mm -hmm. you know, looking at people as they walk through the hotel to have that be such a prevalent thing and to have that be in, in the words of one of the guys, the weirdest thing about being in an isolated quarantine for two months was sort of revelatory that, um, you know, it's one of those things that I think we all just kind of take for granted and. You know, when a guy's sitting at a table for lunch and then the opposing team's coaches are sitting one table over from him, that just doesn't happen during a normal playoff. And I think it maybe ex exacerbated the weirdness of the of the whole situation. I agree. Uh, that it, It's just weird dynamics. The one thing that sticks out to me um, is the prison yard. And again, it's one of those things <laughs> yeah. that kind of became a punchline. It's like, holy cow, I can't believe they thought this was going to be their free area, a concrete slab with a bunch of black fencing around it and harsh spotlights. But don't worry, there's a Timmy Horton's truck, Timmy Hose. Um, but to me, that really illustrated how, while we think of these players as human beings, we're not really considering their mental health at all times. And who thought it was a good idea to have a, an area where guys don't see the sun? Yeah. It's possible for them not to see any green grass for weeks or months on end. Um, and, you know, we talk about the, the prison yard. And I was just talking to someone in town. It was a bartender. And she was like, you know, I've seen pictures of it. Why didn't they put plants there? Plants make everything look green and happy. <laughs> right? And it's a small thing like that. If they brought in a couple of plants, maybe that would have changed guys' complexions that I'm not literally fenced in and trapped. One guy told me he felt like an animal. Like, just think about that. Like, yeah. that's awful. And as they are isolated, again, not with their loved ones, um, you know, cooped up in a hotel room in a time that for all of us is really challenging and stressful and, and bringing out anxiety in people who have never experienced anxiety before. Um, it's just not ideal. Yeah. And again, like I know some of the reaction to the story was to be expected, which is, hey, these guys are prima donnas, like everybody's losing their jobs and you know, everybody's getting sick with COVID and yada, yada, yada. And, and yeah, they, I, I want to tell you that they understand that. They understand that these are very first world problems, but but these are problems and these are challenges and this is what they're they're living right now. And, and in some cases, it's stuff they agreed to. And in some cases, it's not. But that brings us to the, the other point about the story, which I found really interesting, which is the future of the bubble. Now, in our previous reporting on what next season could look like. There is an expectation from some teams, at least in their modeling, that there might be some bubble action, either at the beginning of the season in order to buy some time until fans can come back to arenas, potentially the postseason again, depending how things go, uh, potentially the regular season if they decide to like do a little hub city action where all the Canadian teams play each other and, and all other regional teams play each other. Uh, in, God, in their I never own want to hear the word hub city divisions. again. What? I never want to hear the word hub city again. And after 2021, <laughs> I never want to hear the word zoom again. <laughs> no zooms, no hubs, but it's possible. 
And what was interesting from the players was this perspective of we hate the bubble, but also let's just see if the NHL understands what was wrong with the bubble and also sigh, I guess if it's the only way I'm going to get paid next year, I might do the bubble again. That kind of seems like where their heads are at right now. Totally. Like, you know, one of the guys that I talked to who I, I felt like had some of the harshest criticism um, and, and, you know, really just sounded like a pretty rough experience for him. And then we're at the end of the conversation. I'm like, so would you do it again? And he's like, if you're telling me that's the only way I could win a Stanley Cup, yeah, I'm getting in there. And like <laughs> that to me is the ultimate hockey player response. And and I think it shows that, you know, like these guys really, they're not complaining. Look, we asked them to tell us what it's like. And, and I, I believe they were giving us an honest um, assessment, but you've largely haven't seen them gripe about it publicly. Um, I, I don't think when this is all done, there's going to be a big groundswell of, of lamenting. Um, they understand it, but they're they're team players, and and I do think that the financials of it and them understanding um, the way escrow works and the way that they need to play in order to get paid, um, those are all factors into them saying, you know what, I would do it again. Indeed, it's good stuff, uh, and thanks, everybody, for checking it out. And now let's check out what the other part of the offseason is going to look like with Frank Provenzano. Joining us on the line is Frank Provenzano, uh, former assistant general manager with the Capitals and the Dallas Stars, uh, now uh, working with uh, coaches, uh, coaching coaches, I think would be the way that we'd probably describe it. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but Frank wanted to have you come on and talk about what, from your perspective as a former NHL front office man, what this offseason is going to look like. Flat salary cap. Uh, not really sure when the next season is going to start. If you were still in the front office of a team, how would you even be approaching the uncertainty of this offseason? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a part of me that looks back now and is like, oh my gosh, thank goodness I'm not <laughs> doing contracts and part of an NHL front office anymore, given what they have to deal with right now. And then there's a part of me that looks at it and says, boy, you know, this would almost be fun in a way to be part of an NHL front office right now. Because I think if, if you're good at NHL front officing, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, you know, you could really move the needle this off season. If you make better value decisions, then maybe at any point under the salary cap, Frank, what are some trends that you think we're going to see? I feel like the one I keep hearing again and again is this is kind of going to eliminate the middle class of, of NHL players, and that's the one area that's going to be hurt. Do you think we're going to start seeing offer sheets because there are some owners who are hurting financially and others could maybe target them in that way? Like, what are some things that could come out of this? Well, you know, I think what you have and you guys touched on this before it's just a massive amount of uncertainty the only thing you actually know at this point is what the flat cap will be you know two things you know the cap's going to be flat and you know that the public health emergency that we find ourselves in is probably going to be around in one shape or form for you know arguably the duration of whatever 2020 2021 is so I think you're going to see almost – I don't think you're going to see necessarily offer sheets because I think you're going to see potentially more players available, whether it's through straight unrestricted free agents or more buyouts or more restricted free agents that simply you know, are, are usable and contributing players mm -hmm. but that don't get uh, qualified because teams are either afraid of – that qualifying number or a potential arbitration risk and they have to keep some, some powder dry. I think, mm. you know, like I said, it's really going to come down to value decisions. And, you know, I think for agency this year, whenever the top guys, whether it's Alex Pietrangelo or, or Taylor Hall make their decisions, that's going to be the log jam. But I think the quote unquote first wave of this, for agency in October, uh, which sounds even strange to say, is going to be <laughs> short. Like it's going to be almost like a like a high peak and short duration. Mm. And then I think teams are just going to wait it out because at this point they don't even know what their season looks like. And you know, right. if you if you say your typical NHL team, 
does $60 million at the gate and $30 million in corporate sponsorship and $20 million in in broadcast, and that's not even adding in merch and parking and stuff like that. Say it's revenues of $110 million, well, they may be looking at $50 million if they're at a quarter capacity or, or no fans and that in the Canadian border. So I think teams at the end of the day are just going to be sitting and waiting to the extent they can until some of this uncertainty is cleared up. And if you make, assuming there's maybe more artificially created free agents than there ever have been, if you have a team, uh, you know, your top end guys theoretically on game impact might cancel each other out. But if I have a a player on my team, a $2 million player, that's a $2 million value. And you pick up a $2 million player. That's really a $4 million value. That starts to tilt the the scales in your favor a little bit. Yeah, indeed. And I, I was I had a question about the economics when when you were in the league. I always feel like you know we we spend so much time on cap friendly and you know all these sites to try to figure out the economics of these teams, but we don't have any idea what the internal economics of these teams are. How prevalent around the league or even with the teams that you worked for is the internal salary cap that we sometimes hear about? Well, I worked for three teams, and it was, you know, that if that's my sample size, it was 100% prevalent or relevant <laughs> in that, you know, the cap number's fine in terms of roster construction, but your internal budget is what your owner, the check your owner's prepared to write. Like, you know, again, let's say each team does right now a million and a half at the gate. That's $62 million. And, you know, one of the things uh, my wife has built a real estate business, so we are actually sponsors of the Stars. Yeah. I just had a conversation with their sponsorship department. And, you know, because I, I know all those guys and know sort of the internal budgeting, like it's, it's they're having some tough conversation with, you know, the, the, the naming rights sponsor for the Stars is American Airlines. Mm. And I'm sure <laughs> that phone call is, you know, American Airlines is saying, hey, I don't know if you've got read the news lately but we haven't had the best year revenue wise either so it's not just a ticket issue you know let's say corporate sponsorship the value proposition there is is a function of people being at the game so if you by definition have 25 percent capacity or nobody in the stands it's going to be hard to realize 100 percent of your corporate sponsorship revenues at least in year one so really the only kind of thing that might be safe or or uncertain or certain in this environment are, are your local broadcast revenues. And again, if, if your owners in a normal time, most NHL teams from an operating standpoint are not profitable or marginally profitable. There's, you know, it's one thing because it's a gate driven league primarily still. So it's one thing to lose profitability. Let's say if you're the national football league, you're so insulated from these fluctuations because of your national TV contracts. It's another thing to lose money. And I think Mm -hmm. NHL teams are looking at, you know, significant losses of money of operating revenue where owners are going to have to write checks. And if you're an owner whose core business is being severely impacted by coronavirus, you know, the Miami heat, their owners, a cruise carnival cruise lines. And I, you know, I'm guessing their revenues are down you might not be willing to write what in a normal year might be a five or $10 million check. You might not be willing or able to write a $50 million check. Yeah. All right. You're not a media executive, but I want to ask you this because you mentioned it. Um, the NHL doesn't get a bulk of its revenue via its TV contract, but we're in a situation where we're about to come up with a new U S TV deal. Do you think it's realistic for teams to expect a little bit of reprieve there? Or do you think that, the fact that we are about to hit a recession, we're in this global pandemic, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, maybe that won't be as lucrative as we thought, and the economics are probably going to stay the same for the next couple years or even decades. Well, I mean, it's just a question of buckets, right? And I think the it's reasonable to expect that the NHL, and quite frankly, most of the major professional sports leagues in North America can expect to see if not the revenues that they're currently enjoying an increase in those revenues primarily because people now are focused on home and you know like i said we're in the home street or my wife's business is in the home space as well mm-hmm. and that sector is doing quite well because people are focused on home 
you're seeing, I've got people over right now installing a new TV and I just signed up for YouTube TV today to stream, uh, to stream sports. So I think you're going to see different avenues for these leagues to realize revenues, particularly from the digital streamer, digital streaming sector. That bucket's going to grow, but I don't think the growth in that bucket economically is going to offset the threats to the other big buckets, and in the NHL's case, significantly big budget a bucket of ticket revenue and sponsorship revenue and all the revenues tied to actually having human beings come to the game. I like YouTube TV. I, I, I still pour one out for PlayStation View. That was my first uh, cord-cutting streaming service, and it's not there anymore. Um, last one for me, Frank, and uh, appreciate the time. So you're working with coaches now, doing some, some representation, doing some coaching of the coaches, training them, the whole thing. I've been fascinated by this, this growth in that industry in the sense that I feel like coaches are now becoming multifaceted creatures. You know, they're no longer just skates in a, in a hoodie and a whistle on the ice. They're, they're learning that there is more to life than that, that there needs to be a total package to their lives uh, and their livelihoods. Uh, if you could talk about a little bit about the, the uh, growth and innovation of the uh, total package of, of coaching over the years. Well, uh, number one, you know, you've seen just an increase. Let's talk about the National Hockey League in, in, in particular. You've seen an increase in just headcount. The, mm. the concept of coaching at the NHL level has grown in, in terms of what is a, a lineup of coaches, if you will. Uh, the extreme example is the Toronto Maple Leafs in, in that they look at it at, or the organization holistically as how can we make you know, our, our primary asset being players better at every level, not just at the NHL level. And I've always thought that was where it should go. So I think you're really seeing an increase, you know, historically the, when you thought of NHL coaches, you thought of the guys behind the bench in an NHL game. And where you've really seen growth is the coaching and coaching resources that aren't behind the bench in an NHL game, whether it's in player development, whether it's in your minor league system. You know, goal, we were just talking today, I was talking with Mike Valley, who's a partner of mine in the coaching endeavor, former goalie coach, former goalie, and just the fact that five years ago, you never used to have full-time minor league goalie coaches, and now that's pretty standard. So I think you're just seeing an acceptance and a realization that coaching isn't just, you know, who should be out there on the ice in an NHL game, but it goes into all the preparation and all the touch points of your assets going forward, especially since, you know, the league's getting younger and you have to realize the return organizationally from your young players earlier than you ever have. And so Along with that, you've had, you know, you had Mike Babcock sort of increase the amount of, of compensation the coaches got, and they've formed an, uh, an association, and they, they sort of do a really good job of, of communicating with each other. And I think you're seeing the compensation rates rise to a level that, quite frankly, they should be at to have that level of knowledge and expertise and the ability to handle athletes at this level uh, for the best league in the world. Well, Frank, thank you so much for the conversation. I feel like you gave me personally a lot to chew on, so I'm sure our listeners as well. Uh, we appreciate it. Anytime, guys. Take care. All right, thanks to Frank. Let's uh, talk about a different kind of Franks. It's our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly oh, look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. It's our segment each week where we take a look at the hockey media's hyperbole and foibles and mistakes. So the uh, NHL award voting happened. Um, like I say every year, look, I've got my own peculiar criteria for the Hart Trophy. I don't begrudge anybody else's peculiar criteria for their award voting. I just ask that you can defend it logically. And try not to make mistakes. I don't know about you, Emily, but I pour over my ballot to make sure I didn't screw anything up. I don't want to end up in the in a, the PHWA's here are the people that messed up their ballot story that comes out the day after the awards. That's the last thing I want, I want to have happen. 
Indeed. Is, is this right. the first? Is this it, or, or are we calling someone out? Well, John Warrow of the Associated Press. Uh, <laughs> so he did two things that bugged me. Uh, first of all, he, he did make a mistake. He listed Adam Fox, uh, who is a defenseman, as a forward on his all-rookie team. which Positionless hockey, his, let's go. His all-rookie ballot. Uh, and again, that's just one of those things where I, I, I painstakingly, especially after Ovechkin Gate a few years ago, where... Ovechkin famously was listed at the wrong position. Like, I just make sure everyone is where they need to be position-wise on all those all-star teams. So for that to happen is is kind of discouraging. But that 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 in and of itself wouldn't necessarily be enough to get you on Phil Kesselov's hot dogs. If it weren't for also the fact that John Warrow, in perhaps an indication that the ballot wasn't necessarily poured over in the same way that it should have been, uh, had uh, Leon Dreisaitl listed as fifth... On his Selkie ballot, Emily, the best defensive forward. Now, keep in mind, this is Leon Dreisaitl, whose defensive deficiencies were the main argument against him being league MVP by those who didn't put him first in their ballot. Like, that's the reason. Like, why did you put Leon on there? Well, number one is he doesn't play defense very well. Number two is McDavid. But number one is the defense thing. And John Warrow had him fifth for the best defensive forward in hockey this season. See, I don't know if that was the number one reason people didn't vote him hard. I, I, I agree he should not be the fifth best defensive player, but I felt like it was more the Connor argument. Because Artemi Panarin doesn't play great defense. Oh, how dare you? He plays good defense. <laughs> but, I mean, as far as Connor goes, that's – I mean, that, listen, I could have easily just switched the, the Phil Kessel this week to the six people that put Leon first and Connor second in the sense that the mm. one team could have the top two MVP candidates playing the same position. Come on. Anyways, I think all those a, folks are fly fishing in Edmonton today. That's another castle for another week. All right, let's get to puck headlines. Dateline NHL awards. Did anything surprise you? I think I remember from your ballots, you, you nailed most of these, I think, correct? I got a, a decent amount, you know, reflective of what everyone else voted. I was surprised to see Yossi win the Norris. Um, oh. I, I felt like it was John Carlson's year. And again, Sometimes when I predict these things, I'm not predicting on metrics, just the way people voted. And I just felt like the offensive numbers John Carlson put up and the belief that it's his time, he's due. Um, I thought he was going to get it. I was I was really thrilled to see Yossi get it. I think he's very deserving. But that, that surprised me a bit. First Swiss player to ever win an NHL award, which I think is interesting. Um, I was surprised that Makar won, to be honest with you. I think maybe my mm -hmm. brain has been a little bit warped by uh, bubble hockey in the sense that Quinn Hughes has been such a huge story uh, during Vancouver's run and, and all this praise being heaped on him and, and all this other jive. And like maybe that made me not remember that people absolutely went bananas for what Makar's season was earlier. But I was a little bit surprised that Quinn didn't make it over the finish line. And actually, it was a pretty decent gap between Makar and Hughes. Uh, as far as first place votes go. So I would say that would be my surprise. Um, Dateline, Alex Petrangelo. I mean, it should be just Peter Angelo. It's just a better name. I remember calling Frank Peter Angelo, Peter Angelo. I don't know why we have to do the Petrangelo thing. But you know how I am about names. Uh, I wrote <laughs> about his public negotiation with the Blues, about the fact that all this information has come out so early, way ahead of the free agent deadline, that the only way to read it in my mind is that he's trying to put public pressure on St. Louis to try to get him a, the contract concessions he's looking for to keep him around. I do think it's worked. I think there's been a wave of public sentiment in St. Louis to try to keep the captain there. But it could also kind of work the other way in the sense that Doug Armstrong now clearly knows that Alex Petrangelo does not want to leave St. Louis because he's pulling out some tricks to try to stay there. What do you think ends up happening there with the uh, Blues captain? You know, I said before all of this public campaign that the most likely outcome is for him to come to a some kind of settlement with the Blues where he gets less term or AAV than he expected. They have to offer up a little more than they wanted. I still think that's true, even though all signs point to him going elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I still think he gets it done, too. I don't think he wants to leave his stuff. Um, but it's going to have to be at their at their price point and probably at, at, at least a little bit of their... Um, usual ancillary stuff. Like, for example, they, the only player on the Blues roster right now that has a signing bonus is Ryan O'Reilly. It's because the the Sabres gave him one. So, I mean, it's... That's wild. It's almost as wild as David Poyle's streak of not giving out no trade clauses. 
It exactly, and and you know what? It doesn't always have to be that way. Like the Vegas Golden Knights in their short history made it a thing to not give out no move clauses to anybody, and then they traded for Mark Stone, and Mark Stone's like, "I want one." They're like, "You're Mark Stone. Here's one," and uh, <laughs> and now he's there for a long time. So things can change. Dateline, Florida. You know, I remember a time, Emily, before uh, COVID and protests and everything, when coaching abuse was a big thing. And uh, Mike Kitchen was not brought back by the Florida Panthers after the season. Um, everybody has confirmed that there was an incident in January in which he kicked a player on the bench. I asked the NHL about it, uh, and Bill Daly said that they were aware of it, and basically that they passed the buck to the Panthers to investigate it and figure out what to do. And listen... I don't know what the Panther side of this thing is. They've not really talked about what happened internally with Kitchen. But I am a little bit... silent on a lot of issues. No kidding, right? I kind of find it weird that like a, a little after a little more than a month after the NHL made this emphatic presentation about coaching abuse and uh and about it being zero tolerance and this that and the other thing. Yeah, they were told about it, so the Panthers didn't try to hide it like some other teams may have in the past. But it just kind of strikes me as odd that the NHL didn't take a more active role in this situation and basically kind of left it to the teams to figure out. I, I didn't think that was necessarily what was being communicated when the NHL was being so emphatic about trying to root out abuse in the, amongst their coaches. I, I don't know. Yeah, when you me. asked that to Daly in the State of the Union address, I was shocked by his response. I really was. Yeah. Um, the fact that he so brazenly said um, we were aware of it and we just kicked it to them. And I'm like... Like you said, you put out this entire public com- uh, campaign that you have zero tolerance, you have a hotline. Like this doesn't feel like you're following through on that. So yeah. maybe there's yeah. more information we don't know, but it, it, it didn't sit easy and it didn't sit well with me. Yeah. But then again, the Bill Peters investigation is still ongoing. Uh, finally, Dateline, Gary Bettman. Two things on Bettman. First of all, what were your other takeaways from State of the NHL? In particular, you know, we wrote a, a, about what next season could look like based on what they were talking about in that press conference. You know, my takeaway is it just kind of confirms what we said that their approach to next season is going to be exactly like their approach to return the play. Wait as long as possible to make any decisions, be patient, be nimble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and, and I, I think that it was also interesting to hear a very much sort of all ideas are on the table, even when Elliot Friedman asked about delaying the season until next October. I mean, it wasn't necessarily anybody shooting that idea down, um, although I, it's hard to imagine that's going to be what happens. I mean, that, then you're talking about like a player on the Devils having not played for you know like a year and a half, which is crazy. Let alone the financial dagger for the league. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we're talking like we'll be back to an original six by then. Um the, but, the, yeah, the idea that there are going to be options for weirdness is kind of encouraging. I mean, I think the all-Canadian division is something that we're going to have to really keep an eye on because of the border situation between the U.S. It's and Canada. Easy. Yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating to see. The other Batman question I wanted to ask you is, um, so he comes out with the cup. We assume there's going to be piped-in booing for the first time. Um is, is that going to be the end of the awkwardness or is, is it going to be awkward to see Bettman in the bubble kind of like giving out the cup in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a vacuum? I don't know. I always, I always picture Bettman, you know, yelling over the booze and, uh, and that's the only way I can, I can picture him handing out the cup. I don't know what's going to seem like this time. It's just going to seem empty to me. You know, the lightning don't have any family members here. Um, if they win, it's just going to be them on the ice. Like that That's crazy. It's just weird to me. It's so sacrilegious to what we've become used to. The stars win it. <laughs> it's going to be about 10 family members, half of them Sagans. Um, he's got his mom, dad, and two sisters here, apparently. Um, and it, it's, it's just going to be weird. And then the cup, you know, we're talking about what happens with the cup next. Um, the going theory now is the cup's just going to travel to either Dallas or Tampa Bay and just be there for the summer. That's where guys get their day with it. Like, these are staples that we've come used to, and I, I guess we just have to adjust that. It's going to look a lot different this year. My question is, so one of my favorite moments I've ever had as a hockey writer was, was uh, at the uh, Vancouver Olympics when the Canadian women's team, some of their players came out after they won gold and started drinking these magnums of beer on the ice and smoking cigars. Oh, yeah. like, it was ma- magical. I, I took a picture. Baller. 
yeah, I took a picture of Poulan uh, during that and uh, just like on the ice uh, with a beer and a cigar. And it's just like one of my favorite things I've ever covered. Um, just like that magical sort of unexpected moment when you're just there writing on press row and you look out on the ice and see all this thing happen. I wonder with no fans in the building if the winning team will take the celebration onto the ice and not just confine it to the locker room. Like the locker room celebration obviously is such a tradition that you imagine it would happen. But, you know, one of the reasons they, they all leave <laughs> is because they just want to kind of be with each other away from the public and the media and the fans. Well, there ain't going to be any media on the ice. There's no fans in the building. I mean, are they just going to start just spraying each other with, with champagne on the ice? That's, That's a great legit, question. Legit if, question. If it's the stars, I think the answer is unequivocally yes. After uh, <laughs> that post-game beer sign that we all spotted on a uh, on behind the quest for the cup. Uh, the Lightning, <laughs> too, though. I think they can. You know, they're a veteran team that likes to celebrate, and, and it'll be so well-earned for them. But I hadn't even thought of that, Greg. That is a great yeah, I mean, thought. Follow follow Pat Maroon's lead, I think, would be the advice to be given with the, the lightning in the situation. That man knows how to celebrate. All right, that's ESPN on Ice for this week. Our thanks to Ryan Kessler. Our thanks to Frank Provenzano. Our thanks to you for supporting the show. Uh, I think we mentioned it last week, but uh, great uh, listenership numbers uh, this uh, the last couple of months for us. Um, which is very, very, uh, a very, very good thing um, for me and Emily to impress our uh, bosses with this uh, podcast that we do. And also a tribute to you for finding it and liking it and passing it along to your friends that you do like it. So we appreciate that. As always, the subscriptions and the reviews on iTunes and such are always a good thing, and we appreciate that as well. Uh, my column this week, like I said, is on Alex Petrangelo. It's on ESPN.com right now. And if you haven't checked out NHL Bubble Confidential, um, please do. It's, it's one of a, one of the better things I think that we've uh, we've done on on the site in uh, in recent times. Yeah, I echo everything Greg said. All I have to say is thank you, kindly, and bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.